0: y'all ready? Yes. Have we been having some fun meetings lately? Yes. We had some, I think, truly amazing meetings lately. My own daughter had an experience with the Lord Sunday.
1: Amen.
0: Look, we were encouraged by all that God has been doing in our midst, and uh, we ambitiously intended to cover Chapter 26, Chapter 27, Chapter 28, and Chapter 29 tonight. After prayerful consideration of that task, it became clear that we are simply not able to do that at this point in our walk. Maybe in a few more years we will have grown to where we can This evening, we are going to cover chapter 26 and chapter 27. We will be making numerous infrequent comparisons between Jesus and Jeremiah. In an effort to leave bandwidth for the enormous task that is before us, we're going to forego the review of last week's material, except that we want to remind you of a particular parable that we wrote four last week in an impromptu fashion. We gave it to you to aid your understanding of the complex details that we covered last week. Last week was a little bit like a man with a son and many servants. The man was displeased that his son and his servants were disobedient. So the man took one of the servants and commanded that servant to spank his son. After the son was corrected, the man proceeds to discipline every servant in his house in order until he arrives last at the one that spanked his son. Do y'all remember that? Yes. In closing, last week we found out that you were the servant that crucified his son. This week we'll also find out that if you want to be his son, then you must be a volunteer to be crucified by the other servants in the house. Yeah. To give you an idea what we mean, this is John 1.12. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become sons of God. But that's not all Jesus said on the topic or all the apostles wrote on the topic. That statement needs to be paired with Luke 9.23. Then he said to them all, how many did he say it to? All. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to prepare to imitate the life of Jeremiah and the life of Jesus, because there is no sonship without crucifixion. Not just Jesus' crucifixion, your daily crucifixion. Amen. Who wants to pray?
2: Father, we say thank you, Lord, for <laughs> tonight. <that you laughs>
0: <bless you."> <laughs> Lord, we say thank
2: you that you treat us, us as <laughs> sons, <laughs> and you
1: discipline <laughs> us <Yeah. laughs>
0: Because you want us to look more like you. Lord, we said, would you work your character into us tonight, Lord? We are hungry for you, Lord. We are ready to hear from you, mighty God. We are expected of your word tonight, Lord, that way powerful.
1: And we move our heart closer
0: to you, Lord. That we are be inclined to fear you and you alone. We love you, Lord. And we say thank you in advance for this word. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, Guinevere, you get chapter 26 and 27. She's going to perfectly enunciate and use absolutely correct Hebrew diction. Sure, it's yeah. going to be amazing. Y'all get ready and listen.
3: Okay. Early in- well that
4: Man, what an incredible chapter we have tonight. You know, tonight we're going to dig into some things that theologians have asked, Bible writers, commentators, and translators have wrestled with. I want to ask you a question. When Jesus said that everything that was written about me in the law, the prophets, and the writings must be fulfilled, does anyone kind of struggle and ask yourself, what is Jesus talking about? Which passages of the Tanakh Is Jesus referring to? Has anybody thought that? Well, I'm going to tell you that tonight you're going to see some things that you've never seen before. If you've ever had the question, where in the Tanakh can you point to that God would choose a singular Jew and use that singular Jew to bring about the kingdom God has chosen? I believe you're going to see that tonight. You've heard it said that the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed And that the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. You've heard that, right? Well, I'm not a huge fan of that saying. And the reason why is I believe if you dig into the Tanakh, like we're going to tonight, you're going to see that it was pretty clear exactly what they were expecting the Messiah to do. Y'all want to do that? Yes. Well, then let's pick up as Law on the Lips Liaison Linton, reads for us. And reading in verse 1, chapter 26.
5: Early in the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord.
4: Early in the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah. You guys remember last week that we discovered that these chapters are not particularly in a chronological order? That last week we went from one king to another king, then we backed up a little bit? Well, we want to put that slide that we used last week on the screen to refresh your memory. Tonight, we're talking about Jehoiakim, son of Josiah. So that is the third king that you see on your list. This means that the events that we are starting with are around the first and second siege of Jerusalem. Now, it is likely that Daniel and Ezekiel are already or about to be taken into exile in Babylon. Now, Jerusalem has been attacked at least once. You see that there was a first siege. Jerusalem has been attacked at least once and either has or is about to be attacked for a second time when many articles of the temple will have been taken. But Jerusalem is still standing at this point and Israel is still falsely hoping for the return of the exiles and the articles from the temple. They are in between the second and third siege. They don't necessarily know that a third siege is coming. And so they're believing these prophets that are saying, look, there's going to be peace. There's already been one siege or maybe two sieges. There won't be another one. And they're hoping that these false prophets are right and that these exiles are going to come back. Now, we will not get into chapter 28 tonight, but it becomes clear that false prophets like Hananiah are prophesying That Jerusalem will not fall. And that the temple articles will be returned. That is what is happening in this situation tonight. Let's pick up in verse 2.
5: This is the word. This is what the Lord says. Stand in the courtyard of the Lord's house. And speak to all the people of the towns of Judah. Who come to worship in the house of the Lord. Tell them everything I command you. Do not omit a word.
2: Mm, This is. A huge deal that the Lord is telling Jeremiah to speak at. Did you guys notice that it said all the people of the towns of Judah? We're speaking about a regalia feast here. We're speaking about one of the three feasts of the year where all of the nation comes to Jerusalem to celebrate a feast. Mm. You guys, in Deuteronomy 16 and verse 16... This is where we have the foundations for these three regalia feasts where the whole nation comes to Jerusalem, to the temple to sacrifice before the Lord. It says three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles, three regalia feasts a year where the whole nation comes to Jerusalem. No man should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. Both Exodus and Deuteronomy both command Israel to appear three times a year. And these festivals, these regalia feasts, require Israel just not only to attend the feasts, but also to bring an offering in proportion to. To the way that their God has blessed them. We wanted to put this in perspective for you. Because what Jeremiah is about to say. Is magnified in its importance. And in his chutzpah. And the way that he receives from the Lord. And he proclaims to the people. Knowing that the whole nation is in Jerusalem. Gathered together for a feast before God. And that's the setting that this chapter 26 is in. So as we're reading through the chapter. Realize. Wow. This dude has some serious cojones to say these things in front of the whole nation of Israel. Jeremiah 26 and verse 2 that we just read, it indicates that the word of the Lord is for those who have come to the temple to worship. So we have a slide for you about that word worship. Check this out. It's the word, it's number 7812, <laughs> which <laughs> is,
4: which is pretty close to the Hebrew word for shut up, and it's shek it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so you guys can see here, we got the dynamic translation uh, of the word worship. What this word means is to bow down, to prostrate oneself, to crouch, to fall down, to humbly beseech, to do reverence, and to worship. But the primary meaning of the word is to bow down. We want to make a point here to you guys that the people that are being addressed in this chapter, they're just like you. They've come to a place of worship. They've come in obedience to the word of the Lord. The word shaha indicates that they were at least intending to come to God's place at his designated time and to bow and to prostrate themselves before their God, to humbly beseech him in order to worship the Lord. That's the recipients of the message that Jeremiah has in this chapter. The recipients are not the ones who are sitting back blatantly, disobedient, visiting local porn shops in the area. Mm. They're the ones that are finding themselves in the presence of God. Jeremiah himself receives a command from God that we should all take very seriously. The Lord tells him, tell them everything I command you, Jeremiah. Do not omit a word. Every man of God would like to believe that he does this. But we need to carefully consider what the Hebrew word translated as omit actually means. And I believe we have another slide for that. Yes, it's the word gara, the word omit. Check out this definition. To diminish, to restrain, to withdraw, to abate, to keep back, to do away, to take from or to clip. Look at the next three definitions. To diminish, to withdraw, to be restrained. This is not just the Lord speaking to Jeremiah and telling him, hey, Don't omit anything that I say. He's also speaking to Jeremiah and he says, Hey, don't be withdrawn or restrained with the words that I'm speaking to you. You have to picture the setting. The whole nation's there. Jeremiah is standing in Jerusalem and the Lord is saying to Jeremiah, Do not be restrained with the words that I'm giving you. Go after the people. Make sure that you are giving and transmitting this message with the same kind of veracity, with the same kind of chutzpah that I am giving it to you.
6: Saints, in an effort to ensure that we don't read the coming chapter just as a mirror historical accounting, I want to remind you of a few things in light of what you just learned about verse 2. The word of God has always intended to be a mirror for our own soul. So Israel did not want to be abused by the nations that were around. We still don't. They would prefer to simply be blessed as the people of God coming to worship. Their desire to be blessed was so strong that they overlooked areas of their own rebellion. Anybody else in this house learning to identify areas of your own rebellion yes. Yes. that you previously overlooked? Oh, yeah. To overlook their own rebellion and simply proclaim blessings on themselves. Hey, saints, is that really any different than Christians who are called to be crucified daily with Christ, but would rather instead of being crucified daily with Christ by the nations around, by the abuse around, by persecution, instead they opt for other options like being focused on their personal blessing, their personal welfare. Christians who cannot see their own rebellion to the plan of God and have opted for alternatives along the way. Christians who arouse the anger of God while proclaiming that they are blessed and saved. Wow. All the while coming to worship and bow down. Saints, have we been tempted to diminish this truth, to be restrained in our presentation of God's word, to withdraw from that kind of message, the kind of message that Jeremiah proclaimed? In favor of a message that would be better received. Okay, all too often in our workplaces and in so many settings, we don't necessarily omit what God's Word says. We just diminish it. We make it less impacting. We dull it down just a little bit or put a little southern uh, nicety on it. Mm. Hey, how was your day going? I feel like the Lord you know, shared this with me. You're going to be all right. Uh, Jeremiah did not back away. He did not omit. He did not amend, or hear me, soften the word that Israel would suffer before their restoration, before the resurrection, before their ultimate repentance and glorification. Come on, come on. He did not omit, diminish any part of it. Hey, we have a few passages on this subject, but I would like to read 1 Peter 4, 16 and 17 to you. However, if you suffer as a Christian... Do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. Peter began by identifying you as the family of God when you suffer. That's how the world knows that you bear his name. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creators and continue to do good. Yeah. Lastly, before we move on to verse 3, you should make a note that the events we are reading about are the political implications of the address that Jeremiah made at the temple in chapter 7. In other words... The text of his sermon, his prophecy, are recorded in chapter 7. And what we're reading about tonight is the fallout, the suffering, the trials that ensued from him carrying out God's words. Brother to pick up in verse 3. Read on through 6. Perhaps they will listen and each will turn from his evil way. Then
5: I will relent and not bring on them the disaster I was planning. Not listen to me and follow my law, which I have set before you, and if you do not listen to the words of my servants the prophets, whom I have sent to you again and again, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh, and this city an object of cursing among all the nations of the earth.
0: Tonight's chapter is full of so many things that we get to learn. And one of the first that I want to point out to you is Shiloh. To understand what it means. To make this house, meaning Judah, Jerusalem, the temple, like Shiloh, we need to review some of the history of Shiloh. Uh, Does anybody want to stand up and tell me what it means? Yeah, I didn't think so. (laughs) So we're going to hand out some passages and let those begin to tell you what it means. So, Andrew, why don't you take Joshua 18, 8 through 10. Rob, you take Judges 21, 19 through 22. Nick Rosales, why don't you take 1 Samuel 4 12 through 13? Nolan, you take 1 Samuel 4, 17 through 18. Steve Thomas, take Psalm 78, 60 through 67. And uh, Michael, why don't you take James 122 through 27? And we'll start to work through this a little bit together. And your note here is what it means to be desolate like Shiloh. So. one of the first things that should come to mind when you hear Shiloh is Shiloh was the first location that the ark of God came to rest for an extended period of time. Shiloh is where the presence of the Lord could be sought by all of Israel. Shiloh is the place that the tribal allotments were distributed for the formation of every household in Israel. Would that make Shiloh important to you? Yeah. Let's catch Judges 21:19 19 through 22. passage has personal significance to me because it's exactly how I found my wife. (laughs) (laughs) There was an annual festival to the Lord in Shiloh. We're we're deep into the time period of the judges, a long time after Joshua, and Shiloh is the home of the annual festival to the Lord because it's where the ark is. It's where his presence can go to be sought. Shiloh was located in the heart of of what was going to become the northern kingdom or otherwise known as Samaria that comes under the judgment of God in the Assyrian invasion. Y'all starting to put that together? Yeah. Okay. It gets even better. Who had 1 Samuel 4? Verse 12.
4: So Shiloh is where Samuel first heard from God. Think about that. Shiloh is also where Samuel delivered the message to Eli. Samuel heard from God. And when Eli asked him, he said, what did the Lord say? Do not gara what the Lord said. Hmm. Samuel gave the message to Eli without diminishing it. Without omitting, without withdrawing, without restraining from anything. This message was that Eli and his house would be cut off. Are you starting to see a picture form? It's where the ark first rested. It's where Samuel heard from God. It's where the house of the priesthood that was there would be cut off. And it is where the ark of God left to be captured by the Philistines. So if you have this kind of knowledge, if you're living in the time where Shiloh has this prominence in Israeli history, you must think that this is a very special place because the ark and the priesthood are here. But God's demonstrating something. He's saying, I'm taking I will take care of those things if they're not right. Who's got first Samuel 417 through 18?
2: Broken and he died, for he was an old man and heavy. Fat. he had, he had led for forty years.
4: You see, Shiloh comes to represent a place where the presence of God once dwelt, but was withdrawn because of the persistent sin of the priesthood and the people. Okay, Shiloh is also emblematic of the northern tribes as a whole since it was within their territories. So it went with Shiloh. You see, it happened with the northern tribes, don't you? Hey, check out Psalm 78, verse 60 through
2: 67. He abandoned the tabernacle of Shiloh,
0: the tent he had set up among men. He sent the ark of his might into captivity, his splendor into the hands of the enemy. He gave his people over to the sword. He was very angry with his inheritance. Fire consumed their young men. And their maidens had no wedding songs. Their priests were put to the sword, and their widows could not weep. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, as a man who wakes from the stupor of wine. He beat back his enemies. He put them to everlasting shame. Then he rejected the tents of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim.
2: Wow. That warning of God... That he would make this house, the house of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, the place where his temple was in that day. That he would make those places like Shiloh. must have been horrifying. Did you guys hear some of the events in Psalm 78 that were coupled with the abandoned tabernacle at Shiloh and its destruction? Sent the ark into captivity. Gave his people over to the sword very angry with his inheritance, fire-consuming young men, no wedding songs for their maidens, priests put to the soul. This is a terrifying event. And they would have gone straight back to that event and said, wow, you're comparing what is going to happen to us to what happened at Shiloh. That's a real kind of
0: word. (laughs) There's some beautiful things Nick's about to share with you. I want to try to help you with this in our context. Yeah. Anybody here been to the nation's capital? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Seen all of the big, beautiful white buildings? Yeah. So if China invaded and destroyed it, and our Constitution was carried to China and set in China, <laughs> and then a prophet showed up at the local church here and said, hey, you know what God did to the capital of our nation? He's about to do it to your pulpit. Mm. How, how would that feel to you?
2: Ooh. Wow. So as they're going through this parallel in their minds, they're thinking, whoa, wait, the ark, the ark was in Shiloh. God's presence resided in Shiloh. And if the ark being in Shiloh didn't protect them then, yeah. then why would we think that the temple of God in our city and in our land would protect us now? You see, they're making connections in their mind. hmm Perhaps at this moment, it'd be a good thing to point out. Church attendance, it doesn't prevent God's judgment when the attendees are in sin any more than the ark protected Shiloh or the temple protected Jerusalem. Your attendance at a church, it doesn't protect you, just like those two instances did not protect God's people. James 1.22, Miguel is going to help us with this.
7: You're not. I didn't catch that
0: last part. What, what was that last part?
7: Do what it says. Oh. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror, and after looking at him,
6: Does. We're going right, to finish. I, I'm a partial scripture reading out for just a minute. Right. 22 through 25. Anybody familiar with this passage? Oh yeah. 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 Okay, so I'm not going to talk about preachers' kids. I'm not going to talk about you being in the church for decades. I'm simply going to say that James was informed by writers that had gone before him and the history of Israel. Oh yeah. We gave an example earlier about the nation's capital. It's a good one. It helps draw it to mind. We are standing in Texas, so we don't tend to think very highly of the nation's capital. Nope. But I want you to consider the fact that some things at a certain point in time stood for righteousness. Like a country that was known for being free and brave that is now being known for immorality, fear, and servitude. And you're watching that before your own eyes and it's not a sudden calamity. God is using a object of scorn that was once filled with the presence of God because they failed to do what the presence of God said to do. So a very pertinent and painful example would be that brother that you know, that you got spirit filled alongside, that is no longer born again. And God is saying, I will do the same thing to your soul if you do not repent. Because we are talking about nations and we're also talking about people. But the perfect law that gives freedom. Saints, this whole Remember series has been teaching us to look into the perfect law, and Jeremiah is teaching us to preach the perfect law and do it without omitting a word. Now, as you hear 26 and 27, I want you to listen to the specific details that Mike reads.
7: If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. I worthless. find that
6: scary, to be honest. So James mentions our tongue as well as our deeds. The religion that is false and worthless is one that is deceptive in its nature. But one that God accepts is pure, faultless, that looks after orphans, widows, the distressed, and keeps oneself from being polluted. Since that's exactly the context of Jeremiah 7. The prophecy that we already told you was given, and we're now looking at the fallout effects of giving that prophecy speaks about not polluting oneself, about how they're caring for or lack of care for the orphans, for the widows, and speech that was not followed by deeds. (laughs) James is commenting on subject matters that have happened to his people and speaking to the body of Christ that are believers. And I think that James might be speaking to us as well. The presence of the Lord is protection when we stand in obedience to God's word. If you want proof of that, look at Isaiah and Hezekiah. But disobedience will not protect you even if you're sitting in a room where his Come on. presence regularly dwells. Yeah. Come on. The presence of the Lord is an indictment against those who do not obey the word of God. I want your name to be remembered in eternity for righteousness sake, yeah, not for infamy like Shiloh. Yeah. Who wants to
0: obey the word of God? Yeah. Let's pick up in verse 7. And start to see Jeremiah as the stellar example that he is.
5: The priests, the prophets, and all the people heard Jeremiah speak these words in the house of the Lord. But as soon as Jeremiah finished telling all the people everything the Lord had commanded him to say, the priests, the prophets, and all the people seized him and said, (laughs) you must die.
0: It's an interesting response to the truth being spoken, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, where is this command in the law? Well, it's not there, okay? Nowhere in the law does it say if you preach that Jerusalem will be destroyed that you should be seized or killed or seized and killed. (laughs) Jeremiah is being treated exactly like Jesus. Can we hand out a few passages for you? All right. Josiah, you take John 18, verse 19 through 24. Cho. You take Luke 22, 52 through 53. Assad, you take Matthew 21, 43 through 46. Marlon, you grab John eight, forty-four through 47. So we'll be looking for uh, John 18, verse 19. I want y'all to think through this. Jeremiah is being put on trial. He's just been seized in the temple courts for speaking the true word of the Lord. Five centuries later, Jesus was seized feet from where Jeremiah had been seized earlier. Both men stood on the word that the Father had given them and the reaction of the people was exactly the same. It'd make you wonder about preaching to applause. That's not how Jeremiah experienced it. That's not how Jesus experienced it. Well, maybe that was just a one-off account. What does Luke 22, 52 through 53 say?
4: You see Jesus, just like Jeremiah, speaking to all in the temple courts, standing on the word that God did give them. You don't see either of those men asking the Lord, could you give me another word? That was the word God gave them, and therefore that was the word that they declared. Now, Jeremiah, he will survive this chapter, and he will go on and testify, but Jesus' trial resulted in an execution. It is then arguable that Jesus not only lived in the days like Jeremiah, but Jesus' days were darker than Jeremiah's day. Can you imagine that? He was executed when Jeremiah was allowed to live. Now, Jeremiah is great, but come on now, Jesus is greater, isn't he? Amen. Amen. Likewise, the days of Jeremiah were dark. But the days of Jesus were even darker than that. Jeremiah was a bright light shining in that darkness. But you know what that tells us of Jesus? That he was the very light of God peering into that darkness. And what you're seeing is the people's response to that. They are openly declaring the light. They are openly, freely proclaiming what God tells them to give. And The response of the people is to kill the very light of God. Hey, what does Matthew 21 verse 43 through 46 say?
2: interesting. The crowd is around, and they held him as a prophet. Jesus and Jeremiah in both of their scenarios, they enjoyed support from many of the people for a lot of different times in their ministry. But both Jesus and Jeremiah were opposed by the leadership that was threatened by the message of repentance in their ministries. They got up and they preached repentance, turn around, get back to the basics, go back to the roots, go back to the Torah. And both of them had severe opposition from the leadership of their day. This passage, along with the others, is a profound message of warning to the religious leaders. And it's a message of warning to the religious leaders of our own day.
0: Yeah, if you study revival throughout history, yeah. yeah. The largest opposition to every revival that there has been in recorded history are the present custodians of the faith. That is a huge warning to those that believe that they are the body of Christ today. It is not the tax collectors or the prostitutes or the irreligious that resist revival. The people that resist revival are those that already believe they're right with God and are angry that you're telling them that they have room to grow. Yeah. That was true in Jeremiah's day, yeah. and that was true in Jesus' day. Let's get John eight forty four through 47. By the way, all of these things that we're reading are being said in the, the courtyard of the temple.
6: Can you guess who he's addressing at this moment? Leaders! Leaders. He's addressing the leadership that is in contention with the message that he's given. We're going to see as we progress, but Jeremiah, Jesus, and every revival of old has had a remnant of common people who received the message, while the same leaders (coughs) that are being described now couldn't hear it because their language was lies. Pick up in 45. Yes, because I told you, believe me. Can, he, can
5: any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God, hear what God says. The reason you do know her is that you do not uh, do not belong to God.
6: Saints, as we said earlier, Jesus is standing just a few feet from where Jeremiah was standing on trial. Neither man has violated the law, but both are being accused as if they have committed heresy. Both men were speaking the words that God had given, and the rejection of them was the rejection of God's words, not just the man's opinion. They related in the relationship to these words. We're finding out through Jesus here how the leadership actually felt about God. Mm. this is the most pious crowd in the room. Those that have their shirts tucked in that are from a distance look like they belong in religion. And Jesus is saying that you don't understand what I'm saying because it's the truth. Point to a single area that I'm actually guilty of sin. They were never, these words that were given by God were never intended to be heresy. They don't constitute heresy unless we're saying something that the Father didn't indicate. And this is the battle between men who believe themselves to have already heard from God. They're the ones who know the way, know the truth, that are rejecting the fact that someone else is preaching a message that they don't like. Hey, there is no more dangerous position than when we believe ourselves to already have the truth and be unable to hear the corrective word. A believer can be destined for something great for God. Hey? Just like the people of Israel, you have been grafted in and set apart for something. But on that journey, you may experience (coughs) extraordinary judgment that comes from the form of someone speaking the words of God to you. That's necessary to be able to see the original word take place. This is not against God's word. These are course corrections that he installed to ensure that his people arrive at the intended outcome.
0: This is a Memorial Day, and you guys look a little tired. I want you to understand that context that Judah just described. <laughs> Jerusalem was prophesied to be the throne of God. Yeah. Never did the law say that there would not be corrections for Jerusalem, but in the leader's mind, it became heresy or against the law. To even infer that Jerusalem would need correction. Wow. Do you hear that difference? Yeah. This is very much like a believer who has received a prophecy that he's going to be God's man of power for the hour. And a few years later, he's a little bit off track and somebody calls him out on it and he views it like heresy. That's a curse on me. That's not true. That's not what God says. When actually the second word is necessary for the first word to ever come about. That's an important point for us to grasp. You made a decision when you were eight, I'm glad. You've been taught that it is sin to doubt that decision. I'm saying it's sin not to. His spirit will confirm for you the truth of where you stand with him. Your previous word is only as good as your continuance in what was prophesied. And you may need to be challenged. Jerusalem certainly did. Yes. I grew up in a church where they treated it as the cardinal sin to cause somebody to doubt their salvation. I'm not going to lie. I doubt any of them were saved. And what's the harm in that? If they are actually saved, then they'll recognize the words of God when they hear it and make course adjustments. Yes. If they're not, then they get an opportunity to see their true state. Come on. Come on. When did we start to diminish the truth of God's word by making it heresy to even question the legitimacy of your experience? Wow. Hey, let's pick up in verse nine. Look, when we deliver the word of correctly, the word of God, when it comes out as he intended it to, we should never be ashamed, never be concerned with the reception. It's a mistake to assume that the word delivered correctly will produce the results that you desire. It's demonstrable throughout the scripture that the reverse is often true. Both Jesus and Jeremiah... Prove this fact. If your goal is to preach a well-received word, you have the wrong goal. Yeah. The goal is to never diminish, never lessen, never soften, never omit a single syllable of what God has given you to say. Come on. I've been in ministry 28 years, and I only know a handful of men that actually take that goal seriously. Jeez. Why don't we pick up in verse ten? Because this is about to get really good.
5: When the officials of Judah heard about these things, they went up from from the royal palace to the house of the Lord and took their places at the entrance of the new gate of the, of the Lord's house.
4: All right, they took their place at the entrance of the what? New the gate. new gate of the Lord's house. The new gate is the eastern gate. Say that with me: eastern gate. This is easily verified, but for time's sake, we will spare you the historical evidences.
0: Just believe us when we say it is the Eastern Gate. If you don't believe us, buy me coffee and I'll teach it to you. But there's a lot of archaeology involved. <laughs> when considering
4: that Jeremiah references Shiloh, which is a literal place, but it is also the name of a very special someone called Messiah.
0: Somebody <laughs> and we- say
4: amen, JJ. Amen, JJ. We get that from Genesis 49, verse 10. Now, I want you to catch something here. They are putting Jeremiah on trial, and he has told them that they are going to be like Shiloh. The trial is taking place in the eastern gate, the gate that Messiah would walk through. All right? It is even more obvious that Jeremiah is representing, by way of a shadow or type, the ministry of Messiah. Are you seeing that Jeremiah has huge, huge, huge similarities with the ministry of Jesus? He is standing there at the eastern gate, talking about Shiloh, where Messiah, where Shiloh would come in, and he is typifying the ministry of Jesus while he's doing it. Shiloh had the ark, and he's saying to them that your sin destroyed the place anyway. Now the temple has the ark, and he's telling them your sin is currently bringing destruction on the place. Now Jeremiah is inspired. Say inspired. inspired. He is moved of God to bring the people this message, and they want to destroy him in the very gate that Messiah will come through. Then later they will crucify the Messiah who will come through this very gate, and he is who Genesis 49.10 refers to as Shiloh.
0: Can somebody say double reference?
1: Double Double reference. reference.
0: I don't know about you, but I thought that was pretty neat, isn't it? Well, we had more fun with it than you seem to be having with it, but that's
2: okay. Uh, This is is just going to build, guys. Verses 11 and 12 for us, Linton.
5: Then the priest and the prophet said to the officials and all the people, This man should be sentenced to death because he has prophesied against this city. You have heard it with your own ears. Yeah, tell me Jeremiah is not like Jesus. Then Jeremiah said to all the officials and all the people, the Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and this city, all the things you have heard. The Lord
2: sent me. Wow. I feel like Jeremiah just took five levels up with that comment. See, (laughs) Jeremiah said things that would have been heresy if they were not true. If they turned out not to be true, then the things that Jeremiah was saying and prophesying, they would have been heresy because they would have been proven false. But if they were true, if the words of Jeremiah turned out to actually come to pass, then that truth demanded a change in the people. See how important what Jeremiah just said is? Jesus was either a liar or he was exactly who he said that he was. Well, it's the same with Jeremiah. Jeremiah is either a liar, or what he is saying is exactly what the Lord wants his people to hear. Jeremiah himself is not breaking any law by forecasting this calamity and judgment. But he, just like Jesus, is taking his stand on the claim that what I just said was given to me by divine inspiration. The Lord is the one who sent me. The Lord is the one who is divinely inspiring me to say these words to you. This places Jeremiah at great personal risk. He's at risk of being convicted, of maybe being a false prophet,
0: if he turns out to be wrong. Dial into this for just a second. If Jeremiah says, look, I I see the Babylonian army, and they're getting pretty strong, and they could come in and, and they could destroy Jerusalem. There's no threat to him for that. That's right. a political assessment. Yeah. When Jesus spoke, he said things that are heresy, period, <laughs> yeah. if they're not true. Yeah. Yeah. To say you are the son of God, to say you are the one you claim to be, to refer to yourself as I am he, you will see me coming on the clouds of heaven. Right. That's either true or it's not, and it would be heresy if it's not true. Well, Jeremiah can say the things that he's saying as long as he doesn't claim they're divine, and it wouldn't be heresy. Hey, guys, there's a real power, a boiling pot growing in the north. We need to be careful. Could be that China's going to come take over our country, or Trump will get a second term, or whatever ridiculous things people forecast. And it would not be. But the moment that he says, God has sent me to give you this word. Now, if it's wrong, they are right to kill him. Right. That is a huge, huge step of hutzpah. Yeah. yeah. Okay? I wish charismatic Christians could grab hold of this. You know, I was in the car and I heard a song by Susie So-and-So and then I saw a cloud and a license plate and the Lord's telling me to marry Caleb.
6: <laughs> Lord's telling me.
0: If your life was on the line, would you be sure? Hmm. Because he's just placed his life on the line for what he's saying. And he did it after they seized him. He did it in the temple. He did it with the temple guard around him. Friends, that's more than doubling down. That's some serious brass kind of faith. Yeah. This is a
2: regalia feast. All of Judah... Who has any sort of level of seriousness about Yahweh God is standing there in the temple experiencing the words of Jeremiah, and he stands up and he says, This is from God. God's the one who sent me. I'm going to come out and say this. And the whole crowd is there witnessing this. It gets real when you realize what Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, says says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. If anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. Look at verse 20, though. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, must be put to death. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? Good question. Well, verse twenty. Glad you asked. If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place, does not come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be
0: afraid of him. Do you get what's at stake now? Yeah. Okay. He has invoked the name of the Lord standing in the temple while on trial for heresy. Wow. That is a seriously gutsy thing to do. Yeah. I wonder if we couldn't all benefit a little bit by raising our standard on thus saith the Lord. Yeah. Yeah, I think the whole charismatic community could learn from that. Yeah. Because Jeremiah's proven right. And I've noticed with so-called spirit-filled Christians, they do not come back and tell you when they were wrong. <laughs> Jeremiah doesn't have the option for a retraction. He doesn't have the He is either right or he dies. Yeah. And he might be right. And uh oh
6: my. let's pick up thirteen and fourteen. As you're preparing to do that, I would just quickly like to suggest that especially in a body like ours, there's a big difference between you discerning something, <coughs> you noticing something, mm-hmm. and then you saying, This is what the Lord Woo. told me to do or told you to do. Man. Judah, you know what the Lord's really <laughs> been showing me?
0: Something I read on Facebook last year that I thought sounded cool. Be careful, Christian. Be careful what you lay at the feet of the Lord. You only have your word as integrity as long as your word is true. Don't blame on God your fickleness, your faithlessness, or your desire to be perceived as more spiritual than you are. It is dangerous. Yeah. 13 and
6: 14.
5: Now reform your ways and your actions and obey the Lord your God. Then the Lord will relent and not bring the disaster he pronounced against you. As for me, I am in your hands. Do with me whatever you think is good and right. Man.
6: That yeah. <laughs> is worth considering on so many levels. The Lord says that he will relent, and this is that disobedient son that's been disobedient in the same area so many times, he knows that they're not going to. But he's still giving them the warning anyway so that there is a chance, there is a hope. But Jeremiah, in the middle of all of this, knowing that he is on trial for heresy, that if what he says does not come to pass, he's going to be struck down. His reply is, as for me, I'm in your hands. Do whatever you think is good and right. Come on. I have a few passages to hand out. But each of these are going to be on the subject of the noble character of Jeremiah who offered his own life instead of an impassioned defense of his life.
0: I'm going to ask that you do something when you get these. Okay, is that all right? Even if it's not, it's what I'm going to ask and demand of you. (laughs) Stand to your feet when you read it and read it like you've got the chutzpah of Jeremiah oh, so that we can hear you. Yeah. This room needs to wake up. We put eight hours into this, and it's better than you're acting like it is. What chutzpah?
6: All right. Hayes, Isaiah 53, 7. Adam, Esther 4, 15 through
1: 16.
6: Elder John, Daniel 3, 16 through 18. Spencer, Matthew 10, 37, through 40. Who's going to get our next one? Keith Phillips, Matthew 10, 19 through 20. Did I hand that one out yet? Nope. Nope. All right. Avambola, Matthew 10, 27 through 31. And we'll pick up from there. Go ahead and read Isaiah 53 when you get there, Hayes. He
7: was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a
6: All right, somebody scream what name this applies to? Jesus. Okay, we're going to do that again. Scream what name this applies to? Jesus. You're right to apply this to Jesus. I'm not tricking you. This is not one of those evenings. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I'm but he might do it next. <laughs> but this is also true of Jeremiah in this sense. He is a normal human being with a fleshly nature, but he's being carried along by the spirit of holiness, and he offers no defense. He's like a lamb before them, delivering what God wanted, but then leaving the chips to fall where they do. <clears throat> Who's got Esther for?
0: You have to be, you've heard from God to say, Hey, if I perish, I perish. I must deliver this word. Come on. on. Let's do Daniel three. Daniel three eight
2: sixteen through eighteen. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter.
4: Come on. See, this Jeremiah kind of chutzpah confidence is only found in those that are divinely enabled. It is only found in men that know that they know that they know within a shadow of a doubt they have heard God's word and they know that God is sending them to proclaim it. This kind of confidence can also only come from those who are secure sons representing their father. This kind of confidence can only come from those who know the first time they stood in God's presence, from those who knew the slavery that God delivered them from, who know all of the ways that God has led in the past. They know that they can be rebellious, but they also know that God is telling them to say this because they are secure sons. Now consider what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 10, 37 through 40.
2: Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy.
0: That's true. As true as John 3.16, that's true.
2: And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me.
0: Also true. Also grandkids, by the way. Mm.
2: And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. What an audacious statement. If they don't receive you, then they don't receive me, Jesus tells his disciples. Hey, whoever receives you, that means that's their response to me. How impactful is that? That means for us that if we're truly speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if we actually have a word of God and we're speaking it without omission, without shrinking back, but exactly as the Lord intended that word to be, then whatever the recipient's response is, that's how they would be responding to Jesus that's too. Right. On, we right. need to grow in our maturity in yeah. this, yeah. because yeah. when we deliver a word, how many times have has it had a negative kind of response in the recipient, and you're like walking away, oh my goodness, was that right? Doubts start to rise, like, did I do the right thing? Did I say it too harshly? No. You have a word from God, and you are simply delivering it like he would, and so you're getting treated like he would be treated. This brings both comfort and caution to everyone in the room. Everyone in the room should be comforted about this fact, because speaking by the Holy Spirit will cause you to be treated like Jesus. It'll cause you to be treated like Jeremiah. It'll cause you to be treated like the prophets. You should also be cautioned, though. Because you must verify that the very message that you're bringing is a message that's actually worth dying for. (laughs) The message that you bring is worth (laughs) suffering for. That it actually came from God. You have to caution yourself before you go into it. Is this a God word? And then if it is, verifiably, you go in with the chutzpah that you saw in Jeremiah in this chapter. And you deliver it and know that whatever the response is, that's what Jesus would have experienced too. Come on, all right. Who's got Matthew 10,
6: 19 through 20?
7: But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say.
6: Can I get an amen next, class?
7: Amen. amen. For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through
6: you. Saints, the secure sons in this house, we have been. Free, somebody say free, free, free Free from the fear, from the worry regarding these kind of situations, because our good father will give us what to say. See how this progresses in Matthew 10, 27 through 31
7: says this. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roof. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows
6: sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows.
0: Come on, isn't the chutzpah of Jeremiah pretty legendary? Yes. Many men think that they will behave like this. But Jeremiah actually did it. The predictable response to truly inspired speech is that men will want to kill you for it. But the truth is found here in the book of Matthew. Not even a sparrow can fall to the ground outside the will of your father. I got to tell you, I think I have a better revelation of this than most of you do. It's why I'm as bold as I am. It reminds me of David Livingstone. He's in Africa. He's being warned by his closest friends. Don't go there. Don't do that. Those men are slavers. Do you know what they'll do to you? They'll kill you. His response about his personal safety should go down for all time as inspiring. Yeah. I am immortal till my work is accomplished. <laughs> See, it's true that Jesus was crucified. But it's also true that it could not have occurred one second before the Father allowed it to. Stop worrying about how the message is received, Christian, and start worrying about whether you have a message worth dying for. Hey, what's Luke 4, 28 through 32 say? Whoa, somebody read it. All the
5: people in the synagogue Got up, drove him out of that town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his message (laughs) had authority.
4: Man, I got to tell you, we've been to Nazareth. And the audacity that Jesus has to go to that town and preach what he preached is pretty incredible. We went to Nazareth and they wanted to kill us. Nazareth desired to kill Jesus. But you want to know something? He was unkillable. Say that with me. Unkillable. He was unkillable because Capernaum still needed to hear his message. And he could not die until it was the time that the father determined it would happen. Now, in our time, popular messages are everywhere spoken from pansies in their padded pulpits. Or worse yet, video streamed from the comfort of their castles. But it has not always been this way. Men of God have always known that they are unkillable until they finish their work. And men of God have always walked through the shadow, the valley of the shadow of death, knowing that their God would protect them. Men, like the Apostle Paul... Did this in Acts 20, verse 22 through
2: 24. I got three scriptures. Who wants them? I do. Bottom, Acts 20, 20 through 24. Chris, Acts 21, 13 through 14. Cho, Acts 25, 11. And you three men stand up just like the rest have and read with some chutzpah.
0: I mean, put your best effort in it, because if you don't, you'll sit down and we'll get a girl to read it. <laughs>
2: no hesitation in that message from the Lord. Keep going.
7: And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit will happen that prisons, hardships,
2: are facing me. How could Paul know that? How could Paul know that prison and hardships were facing him in every city? Well, maybe because in the life of Jeremiah, in the life of Jesus, and the prophets that had gone before him, that was what was the result of their message from God. So he knew, yeah, if I have a real message of God, and I know that I do, it's going to be responded in the same way as the prophets before me. Finish us out.
7: However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying the gospel of God's
2: grace. How do we do this, church? How do we do this, brothers? We have to have a life that is totally lost. We have to have a life that means nothing to us, save the fact that we deliver the message of God and we testify to His grace exactly where He sends us to go. So what happens if your life still wor- is worth something to you? What happens if you still have part of your life that you're holding on to? Then you, you still haven't experienced the transformation power that you need. You still haven't experienced that level of sonship that is required to preach a gospel that does not move and have the same reaction as the prophets before. What about Acts 21? Acts 21:13 through14. Then Paul answered, "Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the
7: Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, "The Lord's will be done."
6: Saints, consider this for a moment because we're going to pick up the pace. As you hear the words of Paul saying that he is ready, neither Paul or Jeremiah or Jesus could be dissuaded from risking their lives. This is absolutely the call of everyone with a genuine word from God. These men actually end up giving their lives to God. Paul makes good on his promises. It's not a mere allegory. It's not a story from a place that is far, far away it was their reality. This is also the reality of every true son of God. Let's get Hey, let's get Acts 25:11.
1: If however I am
2: guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar.
0: Paul did not refuse to die for the message. But he did appeal to the highest civil authority. In an effort to bring the gospel. To yet unreached places. Now think about Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah left his life. In the father's hands. Because he was already speaking. With the highest authority in Israel. This was the last stop for him. (laughs) Let's pick up in 15. We have 40 minutes. And we're going to make them count.
5: Be assured however. That if you put me to death. You will bring. Blood on yourselves and on this city and on those who live in it. For in truth, the Lord sent me to you to in truth, the Lord has sent me to you to speak all these
1: words in your hearing.
4: If this generation kills Jeremiah, then that generation will be responsible for spilling innocent blood. It's really that easy. There would be a generation in the future that would be responsible for all there would be a generation in the future that would be responsible for all innocent bloodshed because they killed the one and only. This is Jesus saying that this generation will be held responsible for all of the bloodshed of the prophets. But even in that generation, even if they're responsible for all of the innocent bloodshed, look at the sovereignty of God in that. Even in that generation, the Passover lamb was killed by Israel for Israel in the ultimate act of forgiveness. So you can see that their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, even if they were guilty of all of that innocent blood. That's beautiful, isn't it? Hey, let's pick up in verse 16.
5: Then the officials and all the people said to the priest and the prophets, this man should not be sentenced to death. He has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God.
2: Wow, so Jeremiah, after he stands up and he proclaims this message, he's actually on trial now. For a perceived heresy that he's given to the people, even the guilty people, though they have some hope because they are not as far gone as the priests. Early in the chapter, you see the people siding with uh, the priests and the prophets, saying he's guilty, he's guilty. But now, the people are saying, no, 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 this man should not be sentenced to death. This brings a point up to us today. Every Major move of God is resisted by the custodians of the faith. At the very onset of every major revival, every major awakening, every major move of the faith, the custodians of the faith are the ones that resist it the most. This is also the concept of Gamaliel that we see here in this passage. Gamaliel was the one that stood back and assessed what was happening in Jerusalem in the book of Acts. And he said, hey, time is going to tell about this message. If the man claims to be speaking for God, either it happened or it won't happen. If it doesn't, then he rightfully dies. But if it does happen, then your resistance is resisting God himself.
6: You can see that in Acts chapter 5. I'm going to summarize some of this for you. But in Acts 5, Gemma says, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do. Then he describes a man named Judas, who appeared, claiming to be somebody. But it didn't work out. In verse 37, after him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census, and he led a band of men. But yet again, it didn't work out. In verse 38, Emmanuel says, Therefore, in the present case, in light of the apostles, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for their purpose or activity is of human origin. It will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop them. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. He persuaded the entire crowd by speaking about these things. And these men were saved as a result. In Jeremiah's day, there is a remnant that fears God. And they will rise to Jeremiah's defense. We're going to see that shortly. This rabbi that instructed Shaul of Tarsus seems to have understood these events that have taken place in his history during Jeremiah's day since his argument perfectly reflects what is about to happen in Jeremiah 26.
0: Y'all get it? Gamaliel understands this chapter. That's going to become very clear. Let's pick up in verse 17.
5: Some of the elders of the land stepped forward and said to the entire assembly of
1: people,
5: Mike,
0: You can put that slide on the screen. We want to remind you where Micah is in history. You see third down from the top, 745 to 725? Yeah. Micah was saying these things, and they weren't heresy when he said them, and they didn't come to pass in his lifetime hmm. because the king of Israel was righteous. You can read about Micah of Moresheth in Micah 3.12 if you want. You can read it in 2 Kings eighteen three through 6 if you want. But after having mentioned Micah prophesying similar things to Jeremiah, the elders are the ones who stand up. And they rightly point out that Hezekiah, who was a righteous king, did not retaliate for this prophecy. Moreover, that if they retaliate against Jeremiah, the elders were concerned it would bring disaster on Jerusalem faster. Come on. It seems to us that Gamaliel was informed by this section of Jeremiah. He was concerned looking at these apostles that they might be right and say, Hey, don't do anything to them. Because he knew Israel's history. The text now moves on to a prophet named Uriah. Would anybody like to stand up and tell us all you know about Uriah? Yeah, I didn't think so. And the actions of a wicked king named Jehoiakim. So let's pick up in verse 20, and this is going to be highly instructive.
5: Now Uriah, son of Shemahiah, from Kiriath-Jerim, was another man who prophesied in the name of the Lord. He prophesied the same things against this city and this land as Jeremiah did. When King Jehoiakim and all his officers and officials heard these words, the king sought to.
1: Yeah. Egypt, along with some of the men. They brought Jehat Uriah out
5: of Egypt and took him to, to King Joah, who had him struck down with a sword, and his body thrown into the burial place of the common people.
2: Now follow
4: this line of thought considering what happened in history between these events. Okay, we're gonna put this slide back on the screen. Between seven forty-five and seven twenty-five, Micah prophesies to Hezekiah That Jerusalem would be destroyed. About 125 years later. Uriah prophesied to Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim killed him for it. But Jerusalem was sieged twice during Jehoiakim's reign. And they can see that directly resulting from them killing the prophet. There's two sieges happening. The basic concept that the argument conveys. And that Gamaliel seems to have understood in Acts 5 is that when something is determined by God, resisting it will not prevent it. You would think that would be very clear, but we have trouble with that. Resisting something (laughs) determined by God will not prevent it. But the resistance puts you at odds with the Creator personally. Now, before we move on, we are going to take the time to talk to you about the efficacy of Uriah the prophet. I know many of you like me, we see the part that says Uriah fled in fear, right? And we're like, what a horrible, pitiful prophet. But I got to tell you, there's something about what happened here that was very, very efficient for the people there. At first glance, it seems that he gave his life and there was no visible fruit from his obedience. But that is not true. First, consider the man that we heard, El Nathan or El Natan, who was sent to extradite Uriah, the prophet from Egypt, and bring him back to Jerusalem for execution. So Uriah flees. Jehoiakim sends this man, El-Nathan, to go and get him. Now, let's read in Jeremiah 36, verse 21, about this man.
2: So El-Nathan has now had some interaction with Uriah, the prophet. Later on, in Jeremiah 36, let's read about El-Nathan and what he does. Twenty one. The king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and Jehudi brought it from the room of Elishama the secretary and read it to the king and all the officials standing beside him. It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter apartment with a fire burning in the fire pot in front of him. Whenever Jehudi had read three or four columns of the scroll, the king cut them off with the scribe's knife and threw them into the fire pot. That's I bad until the entire scroll was burned in the fire. The king and all his attendants who heard all these words showed no fear, nor did they tear their clothes. Check out verse 25. Even though Elnathan, Deliah, and Gamaria urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. I wonder where Elnathan got that idea. Maybe he had thought back to his experience with Uriah the prophet and they had had some sort of interaction that had caused Elnathan to grow in his respect for the scrolls and the word of the Lord.
0: I don't know, did Saul, Paulus of Tarsus, watch somebody get killed and it left a mark on his life?
1: Yes.
0: Maybe Elnathan had a similar event.
2: Mm. Second, we're going to consider a man named Ahikam. And we're going to read verse 24 and then talk about him. Furthermore,
5: Ahikam, son of Shaphan, supported Jeremiah. So he was not handed over to the people to be put to death.
6: Saints, this is my favorite part of the entire teaching. After hearing the testimony of what happened to Uriah the prophet, Ahikam decided to support Jeremiah. Imagine that setting. Hmm. He's playing a role like Judah. Where all of the other eleven brothers are aiming for death, and he succeeds in staying in execution and lands Joseph in a dry well. Hmm. I'm mixing metaphors here because he plays a role like brothers of Israel have pay, played in the past. In America speaking, Uriah, faithfully preaching and then being executed. It's saving Jeremiah from execution right now.
1: That's right. Come on, because man. I
6: remember what happened to him and his testimony. <laughs> is sparing the later prophet, the later generation. It may be impossible to measure the effect of obedience unto death, mainly because you don't get to see it. You're right. dead. But we do know the price of disobedience in advance, don't we, saints? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
6: While we're on the subject of Ahikam, come, we're going to read a couple passages to you. I'm going to start out by reading 2 Kings 22, 8-10, and hand it off. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan, who read it. Then Shaphan, the secretary, went to the king and reported to him, Your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the workers and supervisors at the temple. Then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it
0: in the presence of the king. If Ahikam did not have a father named Shaphan who read from the law, do you think he would have had the courage to stand up for Jeremiah? No, no. It's impossible to measure the impact of a righteous father on his children. But it surely is an easy thing to measure the impact of not being a righteous father. Yeah. This gets even better. Not only did Shaphan teach his son Ahikam the law, he took his son with him to work. He took him on discipleship expeditions. Would you like to hear about it? Yeah. Or do you already know all about Ahikam? 2 <laughs> Kings twenty two fourteen, 14. Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam. That's the son we're reading about. Achbor, shaphan that's the father we're reading about, and Isaiah went to speak to the prophetess Huldah, who was the wife of Shalom, son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, <laughs> keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the second district. She said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Tell the men who sent you to me, This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on this place and its people. According to everything written in the book of the king of Judah has read. See, Shaphan was the first to read the rediscovered book of the law. And he's the father of Ahikam. Shaphan took Ahikam with him to see the prophetess Huldah, who prophesied before Jeremiah did about the destruction of Jerusalem. How important do you think this father's actions were concerning the life of Jeremiah? Teaching our children the word and bringing them with us daily in discipleship. It may change the course of nations. It did with Ahikam. One last note from the family line. Our ministry training level two students. Who are you in this room? Raise your hand. We're about to do your homework for you, so you should appreciate this. This is Jeremiah 40, verse 5
4: through 6. However, before Jeremiah turned to go, Nebuzaradan added, Go back to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon has appointed over the towns of Judah, and live with him among the people. Or go anywhere else you please. Then the commander gave him provisions and a present and let him go. So Jeremiah went to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, at Mitzpah and stayed with him among the people who were left behind in the land. Let's tie this together. Shaphan produced Ahikam who produced Gedaliah. Shaphan is responsible for publicizing the book of Deuteronomy That Jeremiah quotes from more than any other prophet. Ahikam is responsible for saving Jeremiah's life during the reign of Jehoiakim. And now the grandson, Gedaliah, is responsible for caring for Jeremiah in his latter years. Can someone give us an amen for generational ministry done well?
2: That's what I'm talking about right there. That is a generation of three... Right there, that is proven out through the scriptures of a ministry
0: that's done very well. That's in your homework, Acts chapter 2. So we have 23 minutes left, and they're going to be very good minutes. Oh, yeah. But I'm going to steal one of them right now. (laughs) You do not have the ability to measure the difference it will make in the generations to come by investing in your sons and daughters right now. Come on. Shaphan had no way of knowing what this would mean for the nation of Israel, for Jeremiah, and for all who followed. Remember, Daniel reads Jeremiah's work to know that they should pray and be visited from an angelic power to be delivered out of Babylon, and none of that happens if Shaphan doesn't raise his son, Achiman, who doesn't raise his son, Gedaliah. And raise them in the faith. You cannot measure the worth of your investment in your children now. But I can measure the worth of your lack of investment in your children. I can tell you where that will come. I have generations of it in my family. Hey, y'all want to hear something great in chapter 27? Yeah. Yeah. Are you ready for like sowed bomb level? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You might have to wait yourself for this because it's rather deep. Oh, wait. We're about to dive into chapter 27, and we're going to
2: take it in small chunks. But in every section that we stop, we're going to have a Peshat level for you about the verses that we just read. We're going to have a Sod level for you about the verses that we just read. And we are going to have an insightful comment for you about the verses that we just read. So you guys ready? Yes. 27 verses 1 through 2.
5: Early in the reign of Zedekiah son of josiah king of judah this word came to jeremiah from the lord this is what the lord said to me make a yoke out of straps and crossbars and put it on your neck
2: make a yoke out of straps and crossbars and put it on your neck this yoke it's literally a symbol of the dominion that babylon is given by god to rule over the other nations it is going to be sent to the nations Surrounding Israel. That's the Pashat level. In a sowed level of interpretation, it is possible to see Jeremiah in the light of Jesus here, wearing a yoke crossbar, indicating the coming rule of the kingdom who God designated to rule during that time. Notice in the next verses that the message of this crossbar-wearing Jew... Is going out to the surrounding nations. Uh-huh. What about verses 3 through 5?
5: Then send word to the kings of Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, Sidon, through the envoys who have come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah. Give them a message for their masters and say, This is the word the Lord Almighty. The
6: Message is literally about the historical dominion of Nebuchadnezzar over the nations surrounding Israel. Yes. Now, in a Soda interpretation, it is possible to see the God of Israel using his Jewish crossbar wearing son to demonstrate worldwide dominion over all nations and announcing it to their masters, Ooh. their archons. Yeah. Notice this message originated in Jerusalem. And then it went out to the nations. Let's get six and seven. Now I will hand all
5: your countries over to my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And I will make even the wild animals subject him. Wow. All nations will serve him and his son and his grandson until the time where his, his land comes. Then many nations and great kings will subjugate him.
0: So the Peshat, the literal interpretation, is about the reign of of generational monarchs in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is succeeded by a son, Evil Merodach, who is succeeded by his son, Belshazzar. But if you have eyes to see, in a Sod level interpretation, it is possible to see the symbol of the Jewish crossbar wearing son as an indicator that the kingdom that God has chosen will have dominion in Isaiah 11 like fashion. Over even the animal realm. Verse eight.
5: Serve to remove, only serve to remove you far from your lands. I will banish you, and you will perish. But if any nation will bow its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will let that nation remain in its own land till it and to till it and to live there, because the Lord.
4: So this message in the Peshat is literally about Babylon ruling over every surrounding nation, and those nations being punished by God if they do not accept this decision from heaven. It further literally warns the prophets of those nations against prophesying against this process and goes on to warn them that they will only be able to preserve themselves in their own land if they obey. Now, in a sowed interpretation if you can see where we're going with this, it is possible to see the symbol of the Jewish crossbar-wearing sun as an indicator that the kingdom that God has chosen will rule all other nations. That their prophets will war against the kingdom chosen by God and will not be able to prevail. That the nations will only be able to cultivate their land if they are in submission To the kingdom God has chosen in a millennial type reign, like Zechariah 14, 17, 18, which says about the nations that they will have no rain, they will not be able to cultivate their land because they do not submit. Now, notice that this message originated in Jerusalem, went out to the surrounding nations. And then returns to Jerusalem. It begins and ends in Israel. Verse 12. I gave
5: the same message to Zedekiah, king of Judah. I said, bow your neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon. Serve to his people and you will live. Why Widely.
2: Peshat level, this yoke is literally a symbol of the dominion that Babylon is given by God to rule over Israel for the time specified by God. But in the Sod interpretation, it is possible to see Jeremiah in the light of Jesus as a cross bearing Jew announcing to the Jewish leadership that the kingdom that God has chosen will have dominion even over them. Other nations will accept this before Israel does because false prophets will appear, like Matthew 24 tells us about, Matthew 24 style, in order to mislead God's people, but that nothing will stop the coming kingdom. In fact, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before this happens. Finally, that anyone who does not accept this coming kingdom will be banished from it so that the only Jews in Israel are Jews that want the coming kingdom. Verse 16. Then
5: I said to the priest and all these people, this is what the Lord says: do not listen to the prophets who say. Very soon now, the articles from the Lord's house will be brought back from Babylon. They are prophesying lies to you. Do not listen to them. Serve the king of Babylon and you will live. Why should this city be If they are prophets and have the word of the Lord, let them plead with the Lord Almighty that the furnishings remaining in the house of the Lord and in the palace of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem not be taken to Babylon. For this is what the Lord Almighty says about the pillars, the sea, the movable stands, and the other furnishings that are left in this city, which
1: Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, did not take away when he carried Jehoiachin,
5: son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, to exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, along with all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says about the things that are left in the house of the Lord and in the palace of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem. They will be taken to Babylon, and they will remain until the day I come for them.
6: Declare Hold on, them. Linton. To the day I come for them. Right. Did you hear the Lord speaking there? Yeah. yeah. yeah.
5: Finish it out. Declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back and
6: restore them to this place. So saints, this message is literally about Babylon ruling over Israel and possessing every article in the temple. Until the day Yahweh comes for them to restore them in their place which could be seen as fulfilled in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah when they came back. In a not-so-so fashion, not sowed fashion, this is the message of a cross-bearing Jew that will come for His people. That are the articles of His temple. And He will restore them to the kingdom of God on earth.
0: Now We threw a lot at you in that chapter. And we did it pretty quickly. I hope that you're able to catch some of that. If not, it'll be posted online. There is an awful lot of eschatology that we just gave you through shadow and type that you won't get in Hal Lindsey's latest books. I'd like to talk to you in closing about the parallels that we've been aiming at all evening. Clearly, the parallels between Jesus and Jeremiah are plentiful. Even if you disregard everything that we just said in chapter 27, you can't escape the fact that right after a trial... For heresy, in the temple, a yoke and crossbar were strapped on Jeremiah's shoulders. What other Jewish son had that happen? (laughs) What is less obvious to most believers is that you are to be the cross-bearing son that this message indicating the coming kingdom goes out through to all nations. See, Jeremiah had to strap that cross on him, that crossbar, and he had to act out this message for the leader of every nation surrounding Israel to take to their nation. And he did it in Jerusalem, and then it went out to all of the nations, and then he returned and did it in Jerusalem. We told you from the beginning that last week, the parable about the man who had servants and he picked one of them to spank his son and then the surprise was that you were the servant that was spanking the son. This week, the surprise is that you are the son that is supposed to be crucified as the message about the coming kingdom. Let me refresh you with where we began tonight. Luke 9.23 Then he said to them, All... How many? All. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. You do not carry the gospel message to the nations if you are not dying to do it. And you cannot carry the gospel message if it's not a message that's worth you dying for. To hear rightly from God, to not diminish it, to not redact it, to not shortchange it or soften it in any way. To stand up at the risk of your own life and bring that nation that message to the nations of the world is what it means to be a son of God. Come on, come on. No other experience will substitute. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Your grandma prayed for you when you were little and you got a warm, fuzzy feeling. Well, good for you and grandma, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is when men do not love their lives so much as to shrink back from death. Yeah. And they yeah. carry yeah. his testimony Amen. into the heart of the Antichrist and they prevail. Amen. Amen. It's a message not only worth dying for. It's a message that if you are right in delivering. You do die for. Because the predictable response. If they did this while the tree was green. If they did this to the perfect son. Who never sinned. Then what should you expect them to do to you. We have to put away the false evangelion.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: We have to get rid of the softened gospel. We have to come to grips so that we are secure as sons with what we are not yet and what we will become. We have to know where we are going.
1: And
0: this is our destination. If God could use a message based on a pagan kingdom Overtaking his people and a cross-bearing son that represented it to the nations. How much more yeah. can he bring the message of the actual kingdom? Restored to Israel through a cross-bearing son. And it's your job to carry that message. Come on, man. Would you stand to your feet, please?
4: Church, the gospel is not for good men to come and receive life. The gospel is for men to come and die. That is what it means to be a son. That's what Jesus says will happen to you if you are a son. I want to close with one thought. And it's Paul's own words. When he said... I desire to fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. What does that mean? It means there is still more suffering for his body to do to show what Christ did for them. Paul desired that because he wanted to show the world what the cross brought the world. That men can come and die to their selfish natures and they can become alive. They can become free to go and do what Jesus did. We're going to pray that the Lord would fill us with a confidence, fill us with a courage to stand up like Paul and say, I want to fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ in my own life. If that means that I have to be more vulnerable, that means I have to be more transparent. If that means I have to open up when I feel like I am dying, then I will do so. But if through that it can bring glory to the coming kingdoms, then I will do it and it is worth it. Mighty God, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for what your son did. But Lord, we want to be like your son. We submit ourselves to you as a father. Lord, we want to fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ in our own life now. Lord, we say, Lord, give us the confidence, give us the transparency, give us the security of sons to stand up and bring this upon ourselves. Lord, we want to carry our cross like your son did. Lord, we say now put the cross on us. Lord, let us feel the weight of that death. Lord, by our death, let people around us live.